Hi everyone, welcome to Wharton Tech Talks. I am Spandana. And I'm Javier. And we're the co-hosts for Wharton Tech Talks. Today we'll be talking to Vivek Sagi. As Eventbrite's Chief Technology Officer, Vivek is responsible for leading the company's global engineering team to drive innovation for event creators around the world. Prior to joining Eventbrite, he served as the Chief Technology Officer for Retail Me Not and also held leadership positions at Amazon, first as the Chief Technology Officer of Woot.com, an Amazon company, and then as the Global Head of Product and Engineering for Amazon Business Procurement Solutions. He also holds an MBA from Wharton. Vivek, it's so great to have you here on the podcast. Where are you calling us from? Thanks, Pandana, and thanks, Javier, for having me. I'm calling in from Austin, Texas. For our listeners, could you share more about your career trajectory? Yeah, would love to. So I think I did my undergrad engineering degree at the Indian Institute of Technology, Madras, in southern India. And right after that, I came to the U.S. to Penn State on a fellowship to pursue my master's degree. And, you know, I think about when folks ask me about my career trajectory, I typically think of my career as chapters of a book that I'm still writing. And kind of as I complete each chapter, it informs the story arc of my next chapter, right? So I'm currently on chapter four of my career arc. And I think I started off the first chapter by very early on realizing that I had a genetic defect in terms of I wanted to be an entrepreneur when no one in my family has ever done that. So graduating from Penn State, I said, well, I'm an introvert. I need to learn how to go interact with customers and employees and others that I'm going to hire eventually. So I went to Deloitte Consulting. So that was out in Pennsylvania, the Pittsburgh office. Did that for a few years. Then moved to California during the dot-com boom and kind of took on an entry-level role at an enterprise software company that went public. And from about 2000 to 2004, that five-year period, I worked at every role within that company, professional services, technology, architecture consulting, engineering. But I think that's where I kind of honed my engineering and my product jobs. So that was the first chapter. Then it was, okay, I now know enough to be dangerous. I want to go be an entrepreneur, but I lack some of the business financial skills. So I went to Wharton to get my MBA between 2004 and 2006. And I think in 2005, the summer between the first and second years, I actually founded, co-founded my first company. It was an enterprise software company that kind of was trying to do something at a cheaper price point using open source software. And that was my formal entry into the second chapter of my career book, which was being an entrepreneur. During that phase, I co-founded three different companies in very different spaces. All of them were, we raised venture capital and varying levels of success. I think one, we grew from zero to about $40 million SaaS business. The other one, we grew from zero in revenue to about $220 million in kind of a marketplace for blue-collar services. And the third one, the one that I enjoyed the most, we barely returned capital to our investors, right? It was a hard time in the 2008 crash. It was a software company that became a learning management system company. But this is also where I kind of moved into co-founder, CTO, CPO, kind of the C-suite for the first time. It was a good six-year period where put a lot of what I learned from Wharton to work, but also learned a lot on the job. And towards the end, when we exited, kind of sold off the third startup that I'd co-founded, I started looking around saying, hey, I've been lucky. I've had great teams that I've worked with. Wharton's learning is good. I've had a chance to put it in practice. But I would really like to learn like more about how to scale people, process, and technology, and how to kind of build a billion-dollar business from scratch. 
And it's if you think you know starting a company and growing to a few million in revenue and then exiting is hard, building a billion dollar business is almost astronomically the odds are against you. So that led me to my third chapter, which was I said, low probability that I can start a company and make it that successful. So why don't I go to a established company that has a good reputation? for being able to scale people process tech and learn there and build a billion dollar business there while getting a paycheck. So that's what took me to Amazon. I spent about five years there, enjoyed every minute of my time at Amazon from a culture perspective, the leadership principles. That's also what brought me to Austin, where I'm currently situated. Built two billion dollar businesses there from scratch and I learned a ton about leading, right? If you think back about GE used to be a leadership factory I think during my time there, I realized Amazon has become that kind of leadership factory. If you think about a lot of Amazon alum that have gone out in both tech and non-tech companies into senior leadership positions, I think it was a great way to learn from some smart leaders. So what am I doing in my current chapter? I think after leaving Amazon, I started realizing that if you build a billion dollar business in a large company, invariably the amount of building that you do comes down and the amount of reporting and kind of you lose autonomy because you get a lot more oversight, right? And I'm a builder at heart. So the fourth and hopefully this will be the final chapter of my career is I enjoy building, I enjoy autonomy. And what I've found is companies that have found great product market fit, retail me not, and even more so event bright, they all kind of as they've gone into the public markets and they're looking to scale, they hit some common things like, hey, we have some technical debt in our stack or how do you scale globally from where you are to maybe 2x, 3x or 4x the revenue, headcount, whatever that metric might be, right? And how do you do that efficiently? That's what I enjoy doing, right? That's scaling companies like Eventbrite, which have a lot of potential to kind of go from where they are to that next iconic kind of large cap market growth company. Thanks so much for that really great explanation. It was so great to hear about all the different chapters of your life. And it sounds like you brought a lot of learnings from your time at, you know, working and building all these startups to your roles at Amazon and now at Eventbrite. I'm curious, what are the main learnings for you and what are the takeaways that really stood out to you that helped you really scale these businesses? I think that's a key thing, right? There is no silver bullet, right? So I think as any leader, when you think about growing your career and growing your career arc, the reality, the analogy that I use is like, if you have a tool belt, right, the more diverse the range of experiences that you have, like working at startups, large companies, mid-cap companies, working in different industries, working with global teams versus hyper-local, all-in-one city kind of teams, right, working across multiple verticals or industries, each of those is going to give you a different tool that you can add to your tool belt, Right. And I think that's important. As you, If you're very intentional about what tools you lack and you get that by talking to peers and kind of feedbacks from your customers and your managers, if you intentionally round out your tool belt, that just makes you a more effective leader. And then when you come across a situation or you come across a challenge, you're always looking to learn, but at least you know, hey, this one requires this class of tools and at least I know where to get started. And then I can hone some skills as you go down further. So, so I think that's what I would say more than anything else. At the end of the day, what I would say is no matter which business you're in, when you grow up through the ranks into a senior leadership position, we're all in the people business, right? So the more you can learn about how to attract talent, really motivate and kind of grow talent, 
and then that'll help you retain talent. That kind of drives trajectories of your own growth and your company's growth more than anything else. Thank you for that explanation, Vivek. I wanted to switch gears a bit and ask you to share more about Eventbrite, what does it does for our listeners, and also to explain us your role there. I think Spandana covered some of my role, which is I'm the chief technology officer at Eventbrite, so I lead global engineering teams as we innovate kind of to build the best live events marketplace, right, and platform. So let me start with Eventbrite. I think our mission is to bring the world together through live experiences. And I think we fundamentally believe that live experiences are so key to fulfilling that human desire to connect, right? Especially in a post-pandemic world when we've all been kept away from each other. So Eventbrite, the way Eventbrite serves our event creators is through a very comprehensive kind of easy-to-use self-serve technology platform with the goal that it allows event creators who might be creating their first event or their 100th event to very seamlessly plan, promote, and produce live events. And we do that while reducing friction, reducing costs, making it very easy to use. And then we also allow event creators to reach and grow and sustain loyalty and build a large audience and drive ticket sales, which is how they make the bulk of their revenue. Now, we do this in more than 160 plus countries, so we are a global brand. And when you talk about transactions and actually taking money and selling tickets, etc., we reduce the risk and complexity across all of this so that our creators kind of within minutes create events and they focus their energy on producing more compelling and successful events rather than worrying about the technology platform that they should worry about or fixing bugs on them. Said another way, I think about kind of Eventbrite It's almost like that operating system for the creator economy, right? Because our event creators look at us saying, okay, this is where I have my list of customers. This is where I know who's going to be attending my events. This is where I know where my billing and my financials are. So it's almost like we are the engineering team and the marketing team for our event creators. On the flip side of that, I would say, while we have creators, we're also a global destination, right? So we have tens of millions of consumers who trust Eventbrite to be able to discover local events within their community. Yeah, that's true. We use Eventbrite for some Wharton events. So <laughs> Thank, you. Thank you. We're very familiar with yeah, That's the, the one thing that stands out for platform. us. Is, uh, you know, a lot of times when I've taken roles, somebody asks me, hey, what goes into when you decide between two or three roles? And I say, if my mom knows about the company that I'm working for, it's a good sign, right? And almost anywhere I go, it's... And my mom definitely is also used. She's 70 plus. And she's used Eventbrite too for a couple of charity events that she's gone to. Nice. Yeah. As you look forward to 2023, what are some of the priorities you have for a company and for your work? I think our priorities are to build features for both sides of our event marketplace. Right. At the end of the day, our event creators really trust on us to be able to sell tickets, attract and build an audience and to monetize that. So... We want to continue to make it easier for our creators to very efficiently create and list events while also enriching their listings, right? Putting in better quality videos, better quality images, kind of thinking about descriptions, etc. On the flip side of that, when you think about the demand side of our marketplace, our consumers, we are innovating at a very rapid pace to allow our consumers to more easily discover events and creators, right? To kind of make that discovery experience very easy, but also by enhancing it through personalization, using AI ML technologies to kind of 
make that connection between a consumer who might never have heard about an event creator or an event that might be in their neighborhood. But when you make that connection and that translates into kind of a relationship that lasts for weeks, months, and potentially years, that's what we're trying to make that friction a lot easier. And then third is as we become a marketplace, not become a marketplace, as we scale up a marketplace, right? We are looking a lot at innovating using AI ML to make our internal tooling, our internal processes a lot more efficient so that we can pass that efficiency on to both sides of our marketplace, both the demand and the supply side. That's what I would say. From a priorities perspective, it's constant innovation to allow creators to more easily create events, to monetize them better. And at the end of the day, consumers are just looking to get out and kind of have more in real life experiences. And we're seeing a surge across consumer visits to Eventbrite across all of our channels, native apps, web, etc. So how do we give them, as they're coming into Eventbrite, seeking to discover content, how do we give them that content very efficiently? Thanks so much for the additional color there about your priorities. And, you know, you've mentioned that Eventbrite focuses on the creator economy. And the creator economy obviously went through a very challenging period during the pandemic. So I'd love to understand how has the creator economy changed post-pandemic and what are some of the growth drivers that you're observing right now? It's a great question, right? I think if you go back even pre-pandemic, there was a sea change that we were going through, right? When we saw the rise of the passion economy. And I think the passion economy, there's a lot that's been written about it, but essentially you saw as a new generation was coming out, graduating from colleges, you saw more and more employees choosing to become creators or freelancers and choosing to follow their passion and make that kind of their job rather than saying, hey, I'll do a job from nine to five that I might or might not like and then do what I like from five to eight in the evening. It was like, I'm going to combine those two and I might want to balance out and work for two weeks and not work for one a week, right? And take some time off to travel, et cetera. So the passion economy, the rise of the passion economy was happening even pre-pandemic, right? Now, post-pandemic, there was some wrench. There was a wrench that was thrown in it with respect to, you know, everything shut down. You couldn't have live experiences, et cetera. But fast forward to today, what we're seeing is that the creator economy is booming, and it's getting back and potentially getting back to a level it was even pre-pandemic. So if you just think about some of the creator data that we have seen on the Eventbrite platform, and this was just public within our Q3 earnings, in Q3 of 2022, we had over 100,000 new creators join our platform. We had a total of about 360,000 total creators because we have free and paid both kinds of events in our marketplace. And collectively, that was 1.5 million total events. So it's come back very strong and healthy. Now, out of the 1.5 events, we had about 520,000 paid events. So just about a third of them were paid events. And that grew 10% year over year from 2021 to 2022. Halloween last year was an all-time sales record for us and events rights history. So that tells you that creator demand, a creator interest in kind of hosting events and consumer interest in attending events is coming back very strong, especially post-pandemic. The other thing we're seeing is an interesting thing, right? Events that used to be hyper-localized, like Halloween is an example. What we found out was some of the largest Halloween events that we had were actually in Asia, like Singapore, right? Korea, India had Halloween events that traditionally you don't even think about that culture existing in these markets, right? 
So what's happened is I think as consumers are looking at the global influences, everything becomes global. Everyone is part of one global economy. You're starting to see signs that consumers just want to go out and have fun and they're finding reasons and kind of adopting cultural norms from other cultures that will not be immediately apparent that, hey, what's Halloween? But they're adopting it and they're kind of saying this is a Halloween party and similarly, you know, something else that might be a very Hispanic festival or a Hispanic event. They're starting to become more global events now. I love the phrase that you use, passion economy. And, you know, as you were talking, it looks like that's a very established way of talking about, you know, the creator economy, but it just kind of encapsulates, you know, the vibrancy of events. And it's great to see that it's coming back. And I know you talked, you covered many elements of this in terms of, you know, we are going more global. A lot of these events are becoming more global and that's been a big growth driver. But just if you take a step back for our listeners, what are some of the headwinds and tailwinds that you see Eventbrite facing? today? You know, I think the headwinds are not unique to Eventbrite, right? I think we thought the pandemic hit us hard. I mean, everybody shut down. Eventbrite, I mean, nobody was having any events anymore. We have kind of come out of that. The pandemic, I think, has started, has morphed more into an endemic, right? But then you think about the war going on in Europe, the potential energy crisis that comes, high interest rates leading to potential recessionary fears. So I think for any business out there, And for our creators too, the headwinds are the same, which is cost of getting labor is higher. Finding labor is hard. I think kind of the cost of material and the supply chain challenges that go into setting up an event are kind of real, right? Not unlike retail or any other industry that you can think there. So I think the macro economics are definitely a headwind for every company. And I think for Eventbrite, it's the same too. But on the flip side of that, actually, there's a different thing that makes it a tailwind for Eventbrite too, right? So what you see is when you think about economic headwinds, recessionary climate being in front of us, Eventbrite is a little bit contra from that perspective. So we're counter-cyclical. So when you're in a recessionary environment, the first thing that you're going to cut is most probably going to be that $1,000 vacation or a $250 travel air ticket to go somewhere. Our typical event, I mean, majority of our events are free. And then even on the paid event side, our average ticket price is somewhere between $35 to $45, right? So what you see is in recessionary timeframes, Eventbrite actually does well because while our consumers might not be traveling outside, they tend to do more within the community because the need to get out and do in real life experiences doesn't change. So that's a tailwind for Eventbrite, right? We're counter-cyclical. Anytime there's a recessionary pressure, we tend to see more adoption and more activity on our platform. But separate from that, I think there are so many other tailwinds that are helping us in the sense that just like with e-commerce, we saw that there was a baseline e-commerce activity. And then when the pandemic hit, it kind of jumped to a much higher level and then is stabilizing down. We saw a lot of our event creators who were just doing in real life events, kind of starting to do more online events. So we very quickly pivoted and kind of gave them all the tools to do online events. And now we're seeing hybrid events. So event creators who might be sitting in New York and used to just do a small local event with 20 or 25 attendees every week, and now suddenly doing that in a hybrid format where they still get 20 to 25 attendees in New York, but they have 10, 15 folks from London or about five or 10 from Mexico City attending those events. So I think that's been good where our creators now suddenly have realized they have a global footprint and they can choose to operate and are more successful ones do that pretty effectively. Then I think the other tailwind too is, I should have talked about this, is I mean, this is also 
if you think about in real life and then you think about the growth of social networks like influencers whether it's on twitch or tiktok or anything else what we're finding out more and more is influencers who have built virtual communities are now saying hey how do i actually go out and build in real life communities how do i take this virtual community of you know fans that i've never met most of them i might not even get out how do i kind of go out to each city and get my fans together and do something in real life etc so it's almost like it's coming back full cycle where everybody that's meeting virtually is starting to ask the question of how do we meet in real life how do we get together for an event in real life and i think eventbrite is really well poised to take advantage of that phenomenon there are very interesting points you mentioned like from innovations going on from the side of the content creators from the side of how do we make a transition to more virtual types of events or hybrid now that the situation is relaxing also a bit more but we are not going back to the previous state of things where we did everything in person now it's more like hybrid right what's eventbrite's approach to testing and experimenting features to account for new realities or potentially give more opportunities to content creators to showcase their events yeah one of the things is we are a technology company right and a technology company has to constantly innovate and let data lead the way for which innovations are good benefit our creators and consumers and which don't So we have a very experimentation oriented mindset and how we kind of lay out a hypothesis kind of build two versions and then say hey this version should win but we let the data dictate it. So in any given quarter I think Eventbrite is across all of its product footprint technology footprint is running you know 40 50 experiments or more to kind of figure out which new feature or which new variant of a feature allows our creators to be more efficient or our consumers to be more efficient right so that experimentation dna is kind of pretty well set into the way we build products and the way we ship them so yeah i don't know if that was the question that you were asking or you had a different kind of direction that you wanted to go with that yeah basically it was to understand more about how you approach the new innovations you were doing at at event right which i understood is based on you know constantly putting out their features and just relying on data to ah, see what works best. So I think I think the way we innovate is through a combination of things, right? One is we stay very close to our creators. So we have creator council, we kind of have a fund where we give out grants to allow some of our most kind of success, most high potential emerging creators to kind of help them be successful. So that's staying close to our creators and seeing what's working for them, not working for them. That's an input that comes into our roadmap, right? The second I think is we're paying attention to what's going on in the industry broader industry out there. So when you think about, you know, ChatGPT and AI ML and the growth of all of these kind of macro trends. You know, one of the things is if you're an event creator, let's say you're a yoga instructor and you're the best yoga instructor out there, but all of a sudden if you need to go in and now write a description, a title and kind of put a good image for your event and kind of do all that, and then you need to figure out what your email text needs to be to send it out what kind of ad format you need to create it's almost like as a solopreneur who's great at being a yoga instructor but you need to kind of do 50 other things well in order to get your first customer it's a high bar right and while eventbrite solves it quite a bit by giving templates and making it easy for you to create it i think innovation right now is about how do we take these emerging technologies like chat gpt and the growth of text writing 
And maybe if you can just give us three bullet points, we create your event listing for you, right? You get to edit it, but what could have taken you hours or maybe a few days is now being kind of condensed down into a few minutes. We have a feature on our product line today that's called the sales code, right? So it talks to our creators about, hey, you have an event happening in three weeks from now. So we will tell you exactly when, at what point in time you should think about sending out an email or doing an ad in order to maximize. So using these technologies to, A, simplify the, to reduce the amount of time that a creator has to spend on being a great marketer or being a great kind of community creator or content creator, that's where I think we're looking at some of the macro trends of innovation and bringing it back in. But then the third piece of it is also like, we have a pretty good roadmap around, you know, marketplaces and what it takes. So we have a long-term strategy about where we want to go and it's balancing out both sides of it. Building for our creators, but also one of the reasons that our creators come to Eventbrite is because we believe we're the only destination out there where consumers come to Eventbrite saying, I want to do something this weekend. What do you have going on on the platform? And making that match happens, meaning we need to balance on the consumer side too. Yeah, it's like a comprehensive approach, right? You need to look at trends, look at competitors, look at your users, look at your creators, really understand what drives each one of them. And based on all of that, build solutions that actually make sense for... Yeah, that's true. But one thing I'll say is we actually don't look at competitors at all. We don't because the scale at which we're operating in 160 plus countries and, you know, tens of millions of consumers and then millions of creators, I think we are very uniquely positioned from that perspective in the sense that we are that demand platform, right? I mean, I think we're one of the few places where a consumer comes to saying, Eventbrite, I'm planning to do something this weekend with my friends. What do you have going on, right? And there's also that very implicit trust. Like when you talk to creators or consumers about Eventbrite, in addition to name recognition, there's this implicit trust that you're going to have a good experience. And so that's why what we do is, given the scale that we operate at, we actually pay more attention to our creators and consumers and kind of what their needs are and how we can make them more efficient, more productive. We don't really spend that much time on the competition or the competitive landscape as per se. Yeah, makes sense. You actually focus more on the user centricity and how you can better serve your creators and your users. That makes sense. Vivek, I wanted to switch gears a bit and, and ask you about your recently launched Eventbrite ads. So could you share more about what motivated you to launch in the ad space? Yeah, and I think ads is such an overloaded term, right? So just to be clear, the ads product, Eventbrite's ad, Eventbrite ads product that we launched allows our creators who are willing to kind of put out an ad to try to grow their audience to be able to do that, right? So our ads are not just like, hey, any, any kind of ad that you might see on Google or on any other kind of e-commerce platforms. Our ads are always about creator listings, like a particular event that is highlighted. So a few things, right? I mean, any marketplace for ads to be successful, you need to have a few things. One is you need to have critical scale of impressions. And marketplaces at scale achieve that. So since our inception, we kept building to a point where we now have that scale of impressions. Second is we needed to become a demand driving destination, right? What that means is consumers are coming to Eventbrite today looking for things to do, kind of asking, we become kind of a little bit of a discovery destination, right? 
you need that to happen in order for then an ad to be introduced that can lead to a conversion that you can say, hey, I, help, I helped you grow an audience and monetize it. And then third is I think your creators, the supply side of your marketplace, need to see you as somebody that A, has enough impressions, B, is a demand destination, a discovery destination, and C, can influence, can because you can go and put an ad in any other place, right? You could put an ad in any of the large social networks, you could do a Google ad, you could kind of really do it. Then why do an ad on Eventbrite? Because you believe that Eventbrite's ad will lead to better conversion for you, right? I think all of those things came together. And once we look at the data saying that we can do all three parts of that well, and we saw an overwhelming demand and request from our creators to highlight their listings and to kind of go grow their audience, that's when we decided to launch ads. And we, as a marketplace, we take our trust to our consumers pretty seriously. So it's not like we would show anybody who wants to put an ad out there. So we have some policies and rules within our algorithms that say, hey, if a consumer is coming and searching for a particular kind of event, and if that event happens to be in a particular category and what it is, what would be the list of events that we show? And within those list of events, if there happens to be a creator that is willing to advertise and they want to kind of go and put them in the first spot or the second spot, we will allow them to do that through the form of an ad. Right? So it's still very consumer-centric consumer need centric, but then we allow our creators to highlight their listings when this fit within the kind of list of potential events that the consumer might be interested in. We also do it very in a hyper-local manner. So we've launched ads in cities and then we've rolled it out. I think we're in about double digit cities right now and growing. Thank you so much, Vivek, for these insights. It sounded like an MBA class with that framework that you just shared with us. And, you know, I was personally looking at the last call's transcript and it does look like you're being very hyper-local with a pilot-driven approach to collect these learnings and then use that to scale. And I imagine that even for the creators on your platform, they really appreciate this intentionality. So thank you again for these amazing insights. We have now come towards the end of the podcast, but we wanted to ask you a couple of fun questions that are meant for our listeners to get to know you better. Does that sound good? That sounds great. Let's do it. So what was your 2023 resolution? Travel, travel, and travel. You know, I think my wife and I are celebrating our 25th marriage anniversary this year. And one of the things I said is, we're going to visit a lot of places that we love, that we've been going back to. We're also going to discover a few new ones. So I think I'll be traveling quite a bit domestically and internationally this year. Congrats on the milestone. Looking back at your career, is there anything that you would do differently? Yes, I think I potentially overstayed at a few companies early in my career. So one of the things if I could do differently was really be very stringent about seeing what am I learning? Am I growing? And if my role started feeling repetitive, then I should have maybe moved on a little bit earlier. And the way I say it is be wary of status quo. No matter whether you're early career or late career, if you're not learning and if you're getting too comfortable, that's not a good thing. And now our final question to you. What is your boldest, most unique prediction that folks might feel is a moonshot about the events industry, but that you believe will happen in the next five to 10 years? Ooh. (laughs) You know what? I'll do this. I was a skeptic when it came to the metaverse. I'm like, hey, this just seems like it's out there. I don't understand it. 
But about a month back, I had a chance to participate in a summit. It was a CTO summit of a group of about 25 CTOs in the metaverse. And what it was, was it was 25 of us that got together in the metaverse. We had our avatars. We all got into this place. And I walked away thinking that there is something there that will, just like we had in real life, the way that we've had virtual, right? I think the metaverse will end up becoming meaningful and it'll find some kind of a fit around events and conferences. My takeaway participating in that CTO summit was because I could just quickly go find space in the metaverse with my headset on and kind of go down, find a CTO from another company that I was interested in and we could just go off to the side and have a conversation, right? It was about two times more productive than how I have traditionally interacted at a conference before. Because in a conference, what happens is it's a large room. For you to go find somebody that you're interested in talking to takes time. And then second is there's always this social interaction of kind of ramping up with casual talk. And then you get to a point where you're comfortable and then you have a conversation. Versus here, I think that that time frame, which could have been in the 15, 20 minutes it takes to do that, was condensed into a minute or so. And then when I was conversing with these different peers of mine, it almost felt like we were doing a one-on-one conversation. It was, right? Because in this metaverse, we had these tables that was in chairs spread around. You would just go grab one of them. So there's something there, right? And then the second is, I think, I think we've all got, we don't realize how distracting the interfaces that we're using today are. Like even if I think about Zoom, I've got you all on Zoom, you know, and I've got some other things going on on the side. It's very easy to get distracted and potentially look at a tweet that comes up or something else. Versus in the metaverse, because I had my headset on, the quality of the conversations was very good. Like in the sense that I couldn't do anything else outside of converse. So in all my kind of senses were focused on getting the most out of that conversation. And third is, though the though it sounds cheesy, right? Like one of the things today, the way the human brain works is we are very visually and spatially oriented, right? So if you had 10 people on the Zoom call, what happens is I miss the cue that if he would have been in, in real life, I would remember, oh, Spandana said this, and I remember she was kind of standing right next to the whiteboard on the right side of the room by the door, right? You lose that kind of spatial cue to plug memories into in a very flat virtual world. And in the metaverse, I found that that kind of became, that tool becomes available to you again because you're spatially in a three-dimensional world. I know it's a long-winded answer, but I think the metaverse is going to find some kind of product market fit in the conference or kind of industry. So for Eventbrite, what will be challenging and exciting is how do we how do we make ticketing and discovery happen in the metaverse? Thank you very much, Vivek. We really appreciate you joining the podcast and sharing your insights with us. It was a pleasure having you on. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me.